Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm sure you'll all be glad to hear that I'm here with Professor Akil Lamar. What a surprise. Hi, Akil. Hi, but I'm not entirely glad because you're not here here. Last week, you were actually here here, meaning we were at the same table together, and that was fun. Um, this week, you're home, at your home, I'm at my home, but we will get together later in the week. Yes, and it also means that the sound quality isn't quite as good, audience, but we'll do our best. But really, it's uh, fortuitous that we're recording this so late in the week. Usually, we record a little bit earlier today is... Tuesday, May 3rd, which means that the podcast uh, editing willing will uh, get up on time tonight around midnight. And of course, it's very timely because last night um, there was a major development in the world of constitutional law, which was that a draft of a uh, ersatz opinion, or would-be opinion, I suppose, of the court in the Dobbs case, the abortion case um, uh, from Mississippi, surfaced around 9.30 last night. And uh, today, the court has confirmed that this was a an actual draft of an opinion, uh, but is not the actual opinion of the court. At least it might not be. It's uh, It hasn't been finalized at this point. So what is the... Now, we're going to talk about this uh, would-be opinion, this draft opinion, as if it were the opinion. Um, but also we'll, we'll, we'll also consider um, what might happen to the, to the opinion given that it is a draft. In other words, if we were, let's say, one of the other justices on the court and these, this opinion was presented to us, written by Justice Alito, um, what might we say if we were in dissent? What might we say if we were one of the conservative justices? And how might that change the way the opinion might ulti- ultimately uh, come out. So we'll give you some preview on some of the changes that you might see based on what we see here. Um, so I ho- hope that's not too confusing, but you'll, you'll, you'll get it as we go along. But first, let's just talk for a moment about the fact that this leak actually occurred. Um, do you consider that significant, Akil? Yes. Now, our audience should know that I never clerked for the Supreme Court. I clerked for Stephen Breyer, who, of course, is a justice on the court, but I clerked for him on the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. So I know a little bit less about some of the court rhythms and routines and protocols than, say, my brother and co-author and regular um, podcast guest, Vic Amar. Vic did clerk for the Supreme Court for Justice Harry Blackman, uh, by the way, who the the author of the Roe versus Wade opinion uh, way back when. Vic clerked for Blackman many years after that, but but Vic clerked on the Supreme Court and has a little bit more of a sense of things than do I, but uh, based on conversations with him and with others who are more familiar with um, Supreme Court rhythms um, and routines uh, than am I, this seems um, a very unusual and troubling development because um, the whole point of a deliberative judicial process is to float drafts and ideas back and forth until you're finally happy with what you've got. And then you present the public with the final polished version of the statement of reasons um, by the court as a whole and then by other justices who uh, to varying degrees may agree or disagree with the, the, the main opinion. 
uh, being generated. Uh, Justice Alito was, uh, we now are learning, apparently tasked with the decision after the oral argument, tasked with the job of, of trying to write on behalf of five justices, at least, who at oral argument, after oral argument, uh, decided apparently, at least preliminarily, um, while they're still thinking about everything, things could change, but decided that Mississippi should win the case, that the, the abortion law in question, which prohibits abortion after about week 15 in general, should be upheld, that in the process of upholding it, the court should actually overrule squarely Roe versus Wade and Casey. Roe is 1973. Casey is 1992. Um, to the extent that they are in uh, conflict with the decision to uphold the Mississippi law. So, so, and and the decision was apparently the uh, assigned to Sam Alito to see if he could write an opinion that that would win the support, win the votes of uh, at least four colleagues, so that it would be um, an opinion, a majority opinion of the court. Now, one thing that we don't know, um, and, and, and the whole point is, you know, he puts forth some ideas, people then will react to his, people might concur, people might dissent, people might say, put in this, uh, I'd like you to add this new point, I'd like you to delete the, this other point. Um, so, so there's a lot of give and take, um, after this, but what we know, because the court confirmed it, is Justice Alito was given the assignment to try to write for a majority of the court and to write an opinion, not merely upholding the Mississippi law, but overruling Roe and Casey. One interesting ambiguity is it's not entirely clear who made the assignment. By tradition, the, the initial assignment, and, and, and things can change if in the writing a justice has a majority but then loses it, um, which sometimes happens. But, but by tradition, after oral argument, they, there's a straw vote, a preliminary vote, um, on basically whether the, uh, the, the, the decision below should be uh, affirmed or reversed. They basically vote ultimately on disposition, on outcome. Sometimes they talk a little bit about them uh, on different rationales, but but the, the justice who is the most senior in the majority makes the initial assignment. Understanding, of course, that the chief justice is always ex officio the senior most jurist, no matter how um, short um, his or one day her um, a tenure might be in, in terms of of actual years of service. Here's what we don't know, because it it appears from the reporting that Alito had the support going into this um, uh, a draft opinion of from a, a right to left, so to speak, his own vote, obviously, Justice um, Thomas's, Justice Gorsuch's, but also support of Justices uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett. It would be very unlikely that an opinion of this sort would get the, ever get the support of Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. That leaves the Chief Justice. What we don't know is whether the Chief Justice basically said, I agree with you in result. I think Mississippi deserves to win. I think this law should be upheld, but I wouldn't go as far as you all in um, overruling Roe and 
Casey. So what we don't know is if the chief said, nevertheless, since I'm agreeing with you in result, I'm on the same side as you, I'm making the assignment to Justice Alito, because um, the five of you seem to actually all have a a common uh, vision that I don't quite share, that Roe and Casey should be overruled. So I don't know if, if that's what Robert said, and he said, and I might agree with part of it, but not all of it or something, but, but I'm going to be voting with you, bottom line, so I'm going to make the assignment. Or um, was it the case that just Chief Justice Robert said, you know, um, uh, I'm really, um, even though I'm going to maybe vote with you, I'm not really quite in, a, in accord with your um, tentative uh, consensus, and so I'm actually not going to make the assignment. Um, that would mean um, that the next uh, that the most senior justice in that coalition, Clarence Thomas, would have made the assignment to Alito. That's one thing that, you know, from an insider's point of view, is an interesting little question. Who made the assignment to Alito? Alito didn't assign it to himself. He doesn't have sufficient seniority, although one day he will. But so did Roberts make the assignment or did Thomas make the assignment? That's an interesting question. I suppose it's also possible that Chief Justice Roberts might have assigned it to himself and he could have written an opinion and just not gotten enough people to go along with it. And then, Possible, you know. Because um, uh, when so we read uh, The Brethren, you know, we see what happened yeah. with the, you know, the Nixon case where, you know, there were a lot of opinions dancing around. Yep. Um, so something yep. like that might have uh, happened. Uh, Andy, very nice point. I wish I had uh, sort of seen that. Um, the, 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 um, so that's, that's another possibility. It's also possible that... Uh, if that happened, and then Justice Alito picks up the pen and starts writing this opinion, perhaps this opinion is not as attractive to, to, to some of the other justices as what Chief Justice Roberts wrote, and who knows how it'll come out. So the final word is not in yet for sure. Um, Correct. Um, but, well, it's not, <laughs> it may be the final word, but we don't know what the final word is. Um, it's not in yet. Right. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Now, in terms of uh, a leak, um, you know, there's some talk about this being unprecedented. Uh, did a little research, which consisted of looking at someone else's research. Um, and a gentleman named Jonathan Peters has had a uh, Twitter thread up today with a variety of other leaks that took place in the past. Um, so this is certainly not the first time that a case is leaked, although I don't see any reporting where they have an entire opinion getting out there. Um, like this, so new in that sense. Um, but uh, one of the interesting ones, which many people know about, has to do with the Dred Scott case, um, where uh, it's, according to Peters, he says that historians have speculated that leaks in the Dred Scott case, which consisted of uh, a running account of the uh, d- deliberations in, uh, in a paper called The Tribune, um, as the deliberations went along, um, and then by supposedly Justice John McLean. But also it's, it's believed that um, the President of the United States was, knew what was going on, uh, James Buchanan, regarding this case. This is very notorious, you know, sort of conspiratorial uh, information. Um, anything interesting about that that you can shed light on, Akil? This was in an era where there really weren't law clerks, so the leaks were coming from the justices themselves. And yes, in Dred Scott, um, before Buchanan's inauguration, 
the justice that he had been told basically what the court would be deciding in Dred Scott and said in his inauguration, I don't know which way the court's going to come down, but whichever way uh, it comes down, we have to uh, abide by it. But he actually knew which way it was coming down. Um, but um, truthfully, I find it hard to believe. And I know almost all the justices. Um, I, I, I don't think I've met Justice Gorsuch. Um, but the, the others, I, I, I know, I, I can't imagine. I clerked for Stephen Breyer. Many of the others I, I consider actually friends. I don't think I've ever met the chief, truth be told. Um, but I've sent him many of my very best students over the years as law clerks. I, I can't imagine that this leak came from any of the justices, which leaves as a practical matter potential suspects, so to speak, as law clerks or maybe someone some other person in the court in the in the printing office some a court messenger um um, maybe someone maybe no one leaked and and someone found a a discarded copy in a trash can or something so so those are various possibilities um uh, i have seen reports that the chief justice has um ordered an investigation and the u.s marshals are doing an investigation, and it wouldn't shock me if the FBI um, were, were drawn into the um, process. Does it alarm you, this leak? You think it undermines uh, you know, the justice system in some manner? It's hard to actually um, have a deliberative process if it's immediately uh, divulged. Andy, you know that I explain in my most recent book, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds, the words that made us, that I say, yeah, the Philadelphia Convention met in secret. It was confidential, and they were all under a strict ban not to disclose any conversations while the convention was ongoing. But once they agreed on a final proposal, the Constitution um, people were free to talk about um, uh, not just that final version, but the process that had led to that. So uh, the secrecy was only temporary. Now, um, uh, the secrecy at the court actually, unfortunately, is more than temporary. Even when the decision comes down, the you know most of the relevant actors, the justices and, and the law clerks, clam up for a long, long time about how that decision actually uh, emerged, who made the assignment to whom, you know, how many drafts it went through, what paragraphs got added or deleted because of a suggestion of, of this justice or that one. We don't learn that often until 30 or 40 or 50 years after the fact. But I do think it is often important in the deliberative process if uh, that, that there be some confidentiality while the sausage is being made while the, the broth is, is being uh, brewed by the cooks. I've seen in the papers today that there are calls upon the court to release a decision you know, very quickly now that this is out there, although I, I can't imagine that it would change the timetable. But- um, and, and releasing a decision, it need not in every single case be the same as releasing a full opinion. Um, sometimes the court says a decision today, reasons to follow, or here are some of the reasons, but the opinions may be updated. In Dred Scott, actually, um, uh, some of the decisions were revised uh, uh, long after the uh, result 
was publicly announced, leading to some bad feelings uh, on the part of, of some of the justices. And even today, long after an opinion is released, the court sometimes um, corrects mistakes. For the longest time, they didn't highlight that fact. Now, whenever there's any um, after-the-fact modification of an opinion, um, the court um, notes that fact. And so people can actually compare the, the versions before and after. The court very recently actually re-released an opinion that had initially been released a couple of weeks before. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the decision itself. I think that it might be useful um, before we... Oh, one more thing. If it was a law clerk, the law clerk... I think faces extremely serious consequences, including disbarment. Um, and assuming he's uh, already been admitted, or she's been already been admitted to the bar, or then ineligibility to mm. sit for, for for the bar. So we don't know what the motivation was. Was it ideological or was it financial? This case is not about big business, but any ruling can affect markets because because everything is connected to everything in in economics and so it creates possibilities for insider trading and all sorts of things if there are um, unauthorized leaks so again we don't know whether it was um, an ideologically motivated law clerk some a staffer trying to make a big a buck and a, and a big um, killing um, by, we don't know if the news outlet paid for this leak, this this information. The National Enquirer does. Reputable organizations say, oh, we never pay for um, information. So we don't know who or why. Okay, so it's. I think it's useful in thinking about the decision to first of all think about, the look back for a moment at the oral arguments and remember what seemed to be on the table for the justices. What were the questions that were before the justices? Um, and of course, we did episodes on that way back when, and our audience might want to listen to those again if, or, um, if they, uh, to refresh their recollection or listen to them for the first time if they missed them first time around. Right, and particularly I draw your attention to the episode Row, 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 which was an episode that recapped the oral argument itself, um, and then the two episodes before that, which... Went were a primer on precedent, and um, of course, the reason there was a primer on precedent was because we thought the oral argument was going to basically emphasize from the uh, Solicitor General's end um, and from the uh, uh, the Jackson Women's Orga- Health Organization end that the court should uphold the precedents, namely. Um, principally Roe and, and Casey, although there are others as well. Um, whereas um, from the uh, from the Mississippi uh, Department of Health uh, end, the argument was more about the, con- the un- alleged unconstitutionality of Roe and Casey, um, mm-hmm. the, and uh, so that's what we thought it would be, and that's what the that's what it was um, for the most part. Which is to say that um, Solicitor General Prologer and other advocates. For that side, didn't really uh, defend the substance of Roe and Casey uh, particularly much. Um, they just said, you know, this that's established, and you know, you shouldn't be overruling it, and you shouldn't be overruling it just because you have one new justice on the court, and uh, you know, there are no special factors. It's a super precedent. Yeah, these were the arguments. Um, and we highlighted also 
um, several of the justices' comments, especially Justice Alito, who uh, our audience will remember, uh, um, I thought was very incisive in saying, wait a minute, Um, even if a case is egregiously wrong, it's binding, wait a minute, what's your position on whether Brown should have tossed uh, Plessy versus Ferguson on the dumpster. Uh, and and I, I said at the time in the, the, those episodes that I thought Justice Alito was really onto it, things and was a very effective a questioner at oral argument, pushing back on this. And you see some of that in this draft opinion. Actually, he went further than to say that Brown should have overruled it. He said that what if it were challenged the day after it had been uh, yeah. You know, and that is relevant because Brown was at a time when Plessy had been on the books for 50 years already. Um, and so the argument... As Roe has been on the books, in effect, for 50 years. But yes, he, he also, we mentioned in our podcast that the flag salute cases, the Bidus upholding the permissibility of compulsory um, flag salute for um, uh, school children, and then West Virginia versus Barnett overruling the Bidus. We discussed how that occurred in very short order, kind of like the day after Plessy, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So in this draft opinion, Alito talks, two of his three big examples were actually featured in the podcast. A a 50-year after in effect, overruling. I say in effect because technically Brown distinguished Plessy. It said, oh, that was transportation. This is education. But but Brown, 50 years after Plessy, and um, uh, Barnett, a year or two after Gabitis. And those were prominent things in the draft opinion. Um, they were prominent things that we discussed um, in uh, that podcast episode. We also talked about the court's switch in time, so to speak, um, in, the, in the New Deal, repudiating New Deal cases like Lochner, and they were also highlighted by um, a, a, this draft opinion by Justice Alito, because you could say, oh, Brown and Plessy, that was totally different because um, Brown recognized a right in the Constitution that Plessy had failed to recognize, an equality right. Whereas here, um, you're getting re- you're overturning a right that has been recognized, and it's very different to overturn a right than to recognize a right. And you say, well, if that's your distinction, the court at one po- point in its history very emphatically um, upheld all sorts of rights of contract and property in the so-called Lochner era, um, from 1880s um, on, again, about a 50-year period, and those were overruled by the Supreme Court in, in the New Deal. Um, so that was a conservative right, property right, um, contract right. In Roe, it was a, a liberal right, so to speak, a privacy abortion. Justice Alito's draft opinion mentions the switch in time of the 1930s, over um, abandoning the, the, the Lochner case law, also mentions Barnett and Gabitis, where the overruling occurs very quickly, almost like the day after, um, uh, uh, apropos his um, question and oral argument, but also um, a Brown and Plessy, which is, again, a, a 50-year period. Right. So those are the three cases that he, that, he, that he mentions. Now, of course, he's got a bigger job here than just to say uh, it's okay to overrule a case um, you know, that's been a precedent, even if it's been an important precedent, or for no other reason than we believe that it's wrong because he also has to say, prove that it is wrong. Um, yes. You know, so, so, that's, so it's not the whole decision to say, you know, that stare decisis does, is not an absolute uh, prohibition from us overruling this case. He has to say, 
here's here's why it's wrong. And, and fact, again, also talk about the reliance interest stuff that we we also discussed in our podcast. Right, and that goes to questions of of stare decisis also. Yeah. So, but he starts off therefore not with um, whether or not it's okay to overrule cases in general, but he he starts off with what's wrong with this case. You know, what's wrong with Roe? What's wrong with, with Casey? Um, and uh, so. Um, you want to give us a little analysis of his argument as to why it's wrong, in his opinion? So, um, and he, uh, Sam Alito, is a traditionalist. Um, that's going to mean he's going to have problems not just with Roe, because in the American tradition, there have been many, many restrictions on abortion at the time of the 14th Amendment. 37 states had, or plus or minus, had all sorts of restrictions on abortion. Um, and there weren't 50 states in the union, of course. There were closer to 40. And 37 of them had restrictions. And even at the time that Roe itself was decided, every state had restrictions. And in fact, he says at least 49, uh, this draft opinion of Justice Leeds says at least 49 of the 50 states had laws on the books in 1973 that were in violation of the new rules, in effect, promulgated by Roe versus Wade. So Roe was not remotely a traditionalist opinion. It went against the actual practices of most Americans in most um, most states, in most um, uh, most of the states, um, in 1866-68, 14th Amendment era, and 1973 when the when the decision was handed down. Sam Alito, to repeat, is a kind of Burkean traditionalist of a certain, that's, that's his sensibility. Um, but if that's your sensibility, you're also going to have some concerns about same-sex marriage, which, of course, the, the same-sex marriage case, Obergefell, announces a kind of a, a new right that hadn't historically existed. Um, and so one of the interesting challenges he's going to have in this opinion is to, if he's going to try to herd cats and keep five justices on the same page, so to speak, is he's going to have to write something that he can accept. He's anti-Obergefell. He dissented in Obergefell. So did Justice Thomas. Uh, so he's going to have to have that on one side. Um, but on the other, he's going to need to write, in the, and that's going to be about tradition. Um, he's going to emphasize you know, uh, uh, the importance of a right being rooted in tradition. But then he's also going to want to keep Brett Kavanaugh. And Brett Kavanaugh clerked for Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the um, Obergefell decision. And, and I think Brett Kavanaugh is pro-Obergefell. That's one of the reasons I actually thought among all the possible Trump appointees, Brett Kavanaugh would be among the best because he was most likely to actually uphold Justice Kennedy's legacy, um, which is very much about gay rights cases like uh, Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell. Put differently, I'm a Democrat. I voted for um, Hillary Clinton. I voted against Donald Trump, but I lost. And Don, when Donald Trump is the president and the Republicans control the Senate, which is what the world was like when Kavanaugh was uh, uh, nominated to fill a vacancy created by the resignation of Anthony Kennedy, for whom Kavanaugh clerk. When my party, the Democratic Party, doesn't control the presidency and does not control the Senate, the Republicans are going to be able to get the person that they want. And so my choices are a Scalia clerk 
or Kennedy clerk, and I preferred a Kennedy clerk, so I preferred Kavanaugh. But that creates, you see, a bit of a tension for Alito because he's anti-Obergefell, and so is Clarence Thomas. But I think Kavanaugh is pro-Obergefell, so so that's going to be a needle he's going to need to thread if he's actually trying to write an opinion of the court that keeps five justices on board on um, on the same page. He has to herd you know, five cats, himself and four others. Uh, and that's one reason that this may not actually be the final decision, word, you know, wording opinion, wording-wise, because who knows if it satisfies Kavanaugh. There's some, some things that we could talk about on that. Yeah, there's some finessing on Obergefell in particular. Um, yeah, but all of this, Andy, is because you rightly put your finger on something that, that, ca- uh, that uh, this opinion is very much focused on tradition. Mm-hmm. So think of um, Sam Alito as Tevye, and you won't be, you know, too far afield. You know, he, he's a traditionalist. Yeah, although Tevye actually gives in to his, uh, his, his daughters, you know, going, going astray. Uh, up to a point until, you know, <laughs> right. th- th- there's the marriage outside the faith, okay? Right. And even then, at the very end, that thing is Zeitel, you know, he loves her so much, he's, you know, she's um, his, 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 his special youngest one. So, but remember, for Alito, that's keeping Kavanaugh on mm-hmm. board. So he's going to have to bend a little bit like Tevye bends a little bit. Well, we'll see whether he does or not. So anyway, what he basically... On the other hand, you know, there yes. is no, no other, other hand. hand. Right. <laughs> yes, right. Um, so basically in this decision, this, the question comes down to him for whether or not um, there is a right to an abortion, right? So, and the, so he says, well, it's not in the Constitution, okay? No, abortion's not in the Constitution. You, can't, you can read it as many times as you want. You don't see the word abortion. You don't see anything that's a pseudonym for abortion. You don't see abortion. Okay, thank you very much. So that's not the end of the story because that just means it's not um, you know, a specifically enumerated right, although it could actually flow from an enumerated right in, in, mm-hmm. in some other ways, um, mm-hmm. as the right to, uh, uh, so for example, like Gideon versus Wainwright, you might say, um, flows from enumerated rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not actually an unenumerated right, but, but mm-hmm. neither does it say in the Constitution that we'll pay for your lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so rights can flow from enumerated rights and still be enumerated rights, as opposed to unenumerated mm-hmm. And then there are also unenumerated rights, as are elaborated, as, as the Ninth Amendment says. And then the Fourteenth Amendment um, has something to say about that as well. Yeah. On the flowing, we might think about explicit rights, but also implicit rights. Okay, the First Amendment says speech and press. And you could say, well, speech means oral speech. And press means a printing press. It's actually not a reference to an, 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 an entity like the media. It's actually a reference to a thing, a printing press. So you could say, oh, printing presses, um, they're protected and, and, and the output um, of a printing press. Oral speech, oh, it's protected. Oh, but a handwritten letter, it's not oral speech. It's not the product of a printing press. And you could say that, but you could say, no, that's really silly. You could call it flowing or implicit. But when you put speech and press together and connect the dots, um, they they, they kind of add up to a broader implied concept of freedom of expression, especially for political 
discourse or something like that. So, so that's the enumerated game versus the explicit versus implied game. But then, as you say, there are entire, there are a whole other category of rights that, that maybe aren't even closely linked to, um, that don't really directly fl- flow from any particular patch of um, constitutional text. Right. And the Ninth Amendment contemplates that. You know, and it says the fact that we didn't enumerate them doesn't mean that they aren't reserved to the people, that they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment says no state shall basically uh, mess with, make, or um, enforce any law which shall abridge privileges and immunities, fundamental rights, and it doesn't specify what all those privileges or immunities are. And that's particularly relevant because that's a clause that deals with states like the state of Mississippi or the state of uh, Texas, um, Connecticut in a case involving contraception called Griswold versus Connecticut, and so on. And the fourth, so the 14th Amendment incorporates the the rights that are uh, that are found against the, uh, the federal government for the most part, the uh, the civil rights anyway, incorporates them um, against the states. Okay. By which, uh, just you, the word incorporation, just to remind our audience, means that things that are originally in what we call the Bill of Rights it doesn't call itself that, but we call the first eight amendments the Bill of Rights. Uh, things that are originally itemized in the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, free exercise of religion, uh, assembly, petition, um, a, a right to be free against unreasonable searches and seizures, jury trial, uh, public trial, a speedy trial, etc., that these rights, which are mentioned initially um, in the Bill of Rights as limitations on the federal government in the period before the Civil War, after the Civil War, thanks to the 14th Amendment, become eventually and properly applied against, incorporated is the legal lingo, against states and localities, thanks to the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court correctly comes to see in the 20th century, thanks in large part to Hugo Black, standing on the shoulders of a handful of great predecessors, including the first Justice Harlan, the Supreme Court eventually uh, comes to apply to incorporate uh, the various um, rights listed in the Bill of Rights against states and localities. Rights like, to repeat, speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise, jury trial, et cetera, et cetera. But in addition to that, if, if there is an unenumerated right that exists at the, in a way that the Bill of Rights related rights or an enumerated right exists, then that too is incorporated. Right. If they had, if the 14th amendment meant only amendments one through eight, um, it could have said so. No state shall make or enforce any law, which shall abridge uh, the, the rights listed in the first eight amendments. If that's all that they wanted to do, they could have said that or put differently. The ninth amendment, which affirms unenumerated rights against the federal government is in effect also incorporated against states. Um, un- the concept of unenumerated rights also applies against states by dint of the 14th Amendment. Now, in this draft opinion, there's a footnote because question is where all, you know, what's the clause that does the work um, making all these rights enumerated and unenumerated applicable against states? Court doctrine says it's 
the due process clause, which has a substantive component. And that's what Sam Alito said in, until now, his most important majority opinion, a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald, in which he applied the um, Second Amendment's right to, uh, to keep and bear arms, which was read to involve individual rights to have guns in the home for self-protection in an earlier Second Amendment case called Heller, whose majority opinion was written by Justice Scalia. Justice Alito, in the most important majority opinion he has had thus far, until this case, if he manages to hold the majority, wrote in City of Chicago versus McDonald that this individual Second Amendment right per Heller applied against states and localities, Chicago in particular. And he used the due process language of the 14th Amendment to do that because that's what earlier cases had done. In that case, Justice Thomas said, oh, I think you're right. Um, I think there's an individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. I think the Second Amendment protects that. I think that should be applied or incorporated against states after um, the Civil War because of the 14th Amendment. But I think it should be because of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, because this is more of a substantive idea and due process sounds more in terms of courtroom procedure. Now, that's what Thomas said in a separate concurring opinion in City of Chicago versus McDonald. Alito, to repeat, relied on the due process clause. What's he going to do now? Well, he's going to drop a footnote in this draft to keep Clarence Thomas on board saying, whether we call it due process or the call of privileges or immunities, either way, it's going to have to be about a right that's mentioned in the Constitution or is very fundamental in America. And we decide whether it's fundamental by looking at the actual practices of, of, of states. One final little thing uh, our audience will know that in city of Chicago versus McDonald, Justice Alito relied pretty prominently on some of my work, citing it six times. Justice Thomas also relied on, on my work, citing it a couple of times. Breyer in dissent um, cited it. But the, um, Alito's job now is to hold Thomas for um, this decision as he needed, in effect, to hold Thomas um, in city of Chicago versus McDonald. And one way he does that is saying, well, we're going to rely on due process, but you could call it um, privileges or immunities. And it actually for present purposes will amount to the same thing because we're going to apply a similar methodology, which is um, to say enumerated rights are incorporated and unenumerated rights. If they're deeply rooted in tradition and widespread state practice. Yeah. And that's, in this, uh, in the opinion here, it's on uh, it's on page uh, fourteen where he says that, and it's footnote twenty two, and he, uh, like you said, he cited you quite a bit in uh, the city of Chicago, and he again cites cites uh, Professor Amar here. So here's the footnote. Um, so he, he, the sentence that he's footnoting says, um, when we engage in Okay, we, well, just to back up, he says, we must ask what the 14th Amendment means by the term liberty. When we engage in that inquiry in the present case, the clear answer is that the 14th Amendment does not protect the right to an abortion. That's footnote, and, that's, and then he footnotes that with footnote 22, and that says, this, that is true regardless of whether we look to the amendment's due process clause or its privileges or immunities clause. 
Some scholars and justices have maintained that the Privileges or Immunities Clause is the provision of the 14th Amendment that guarantees substantive rights. See, for example, McDonald versus Chicago, and then he also mentioned Tom, Thomas concurring, right. the concurring opinion. Thomas is the name you just mentioned. Um, yes. And then Duncan versus Louisiana. Um, and then Which is another black, right? Another, you know, whom right. I mentioned. And then Akhil Amar, Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. That's your book. Um, and then Amar, and then he cites it again on the next uh, um, on the next page. Um, okay. So that's going back to his own greatest hits, as it were. That's citing McDonald versus Chicago and saying, okay, let's look at the Thomas concurrence there. It's a shout out to Clarence Thomas and some justices and scholars and and, because he needs to keep Thomas on board. And Thomas has a theory. It's closer to mine, frankly, closer to Hugo Black saying it's not just the due process clause, which talks about liberty, but it seems texture at least to be about procedural rights, rights to, to courtroom um, a, a, a procedures, um, but it's, it's also the privileges and muse clause, which talks about more substantive rights, like the right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. For okay, so now you might, the listener, you might say, well, why are we talking about this? You're talking about abortion. And the, so here's why. And it's not just so we can get to where Akil is cited and let you know that he's cited. That's not what this is about. Um, Here's what it's about, this sentence. First page. Even though the Constitution makes no mention of abortion, the court held that it confers a broad right to obtain one. Okay, so right away he's saying, wait a minute. The Constitution makes no mention of abortion. Is that it? Case closed? You know, there's no right because the Constitution doesn't say it? Well, he recognizes that there are different ways that something could be a right. The Constitution could say it. It could imply it. Or it could be an unenumerated right that is then incorporated. Um, so, the, or it could even, uh, you know, it's similarly, and it can be incorporated either by way of the due process clause or by way of the privileges and immunities clause. So he's laying out all these different ways that this right, that there might be a right to an abortion, and then he's trying to show that it's that it that there none of those apply. That's the mm-hmm. logic of his opinion. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's why that's why we uh, call that to your attention. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now he he said, and um, he, um, the related point that he has to keep five justices, you know, um, on board, um, and individual justices sometimes have their own pet theories. Mm-hmm. Right. So if he didn't say, well, you know, if he left out the privileges and immunities clause, then then Clarence Thomas might say, oh, if I sign this this onto this opinion, I'm going to be endorsing this substantive due process theory, and I don't buy that, so I'm having trouble with that. So right. by, it doesn't cost him anything, uh, Alito, to say, well, if you look at it as privileges and immunities, which is Thomas's you know, pet uh, theory, or one of them, then mm-hmm. you know, it, it still doesn't apply. So it doesn't cost mm-hmm. him anything to do that. So he's throwing, mm-hmm. throwing a bone to, to justice. And, and the people that are linked together there are Hugo Black, a liberal appointed by FDR, um, and Clarence Thomas, a conservative um, appointed by a Republican president, um, uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, and a liberal academic, Akhil Amar. We all actually are privileges and immunities guys. Um, and uh, uh, so, um, and he's saying, yeah, but in this particular case, potato, potato. 
So now he goes into the, um, the history of abortion law. And why does he do that? Well, because one reason that a right might be an unenumerated right is because it was established in the tradition and history uh, of the American people. So he endeavors to show that it wasn't. Um, and one, and he, he's particularly interested in two moments, the founding, and for that he goes into like common law in Britain, talks about Blackstone and so forth. And then he's also interested in the, the moment when, I guess three moments, when the 14th Amendment was adopted. Um, and then he has this appendix, like a 25-page appendix, that shows what the laws were in over 30 states um, at the time roughly the time of the 14th Amendment's adoption. Not, not mm-hmm. exactly, some of them are later, but roughly around then. And then mm-hmm. I guess the third moment would be uh, the, when Roe was decided. Mm-hmm. And he says there that there were, what, 30-something states? Well, he said, first of all, every state virtually, or 49 well, let's, states. Let's just do a chronological. Let's just take a step okay. back. So at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, he thinks a really key fact is that more than three dozen states um, had laws restricting abortion. And there they were only you know, 40 or so, I think fewer than 40 states. So almost all of them. That is the aha fact in Chief, uh, then Justice, later Chief Justice, Rehnquist's dissent in Roe versus Wade. I think that was the key fact that Rehnquist said. It's an originalist dissent saying, at the time of the 14th Amendment, all these states prohibited abortion. It would be odd if, in, if those states at that time ratified an amendment that, that rendered those state laws on the books unconstitutional. That's not what they thought they were doing. Okay, So that dissent was joined by a Democrat appointee, a John Kennedy appointee, Byron White. So Justice Alito was picking up on that and, and just echoing what Rehnquist said in dissent in Roe. Here's a key fact. At the, it's an originalist point and a traditionalist one. At the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, almost all the states prohibited abortions in various ways. Okay. Then he says, oh, at the time that Roe was decided, 1973, almost every single state, at least 49 of the 50 states, maybe 50, and he cites Lawrence Tribe for this proposition as a scholar, 49 of the states or 50 plus the federal government all had laws on the books prohibiting abortion in ways that the Roe ruling repudiated. So Roe, in effect, was striking down the laws of at least 49, maybe 50 jurisdictions, states in 1973. And and maybe that's okay, but it's not a traditionalist opinion. It's it's not um, an opinion based on uh, American, uh, uh, widespread American custom and practice. Okay, so if you don't have the text on your side, because it's an unenumerated right, and you don't have longstanding tradition on your side or even current practice on your side in the main, you know, leader saying, well, what have you got? Right. So he's and and the re, so and in fact, here's a quote from it. He says, when it came to the most important historical fact, how the states regulated abortion when the 14th Amendment was adopted, the court, meaning the court in Roe, uh, said almost nothing. Okay, so the, so for him, that's the most important thing, that when the 14th Amendment is adopted, the, the amendment that says 
unenumerated rights that exist against the federal government will now also apply against the states. Um, the court doesn't say anything. So the assumption there is that if there were a right that was not recognized at the time but was recognized later, then it wouldn't apply. And you can't, you don't get it. And of course, in your writing, you've, I think, given a very persuasive rebuttal to that argument. I do think that there are some rights that aren't expressly mentioned in the Constitution uh, that uh, did not exist at the founding in any widespread way, that did not exist at the time of the 14th Amendment in any widespread way, that are nevertheless absolutely um, uh, 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 valid, unenumerated rights and widely um, accepted as such. In fact, unanimously accepted as such. In fact, accepted by Sam Alito, not just in any old opinion, but the very first opinion he ever, I, I, I think, wrote for the court. So um, at the time of the Constitution, and that, the, the right in question that I highlight in a book called America's uh, Unwritten Constitution is the right of a criminal defendant to take the stand and testify in his own behalf. Here's what's interesting about that right. At the time the Constitution adopted, the federal Constitution doesn't say you have that right. It says you can't be forced to take the stand on your own behalf in a criminal case, but it doesn't say you have a right to take the stand if you want to. So the federal Constitution doesn't say you have that right. No state Constitution in 1787-88 said you had that right. In fact, in no state at the time of the founding were you allowed to take the stand. Every single state would have prohibited you from taking the stand at the founding. At the time the 14th Amendment was adopted in the 1860s, there was only one state that would let you take the stand if you're a criminal defendant, the state of Maine. And yet the Supreme Court in the 20th century, the mid-1960s, basically said, oh, you have that right. Now, by the time the Supreme Court said that, almost every state had come to recognize a right of a criminal defendant to take the stand. Georgia was the outlier. And today it is 9-0 on the Supreme Court, I would guess, um, and it has been 9-0 in, in, in past years, um, that, of course, a criminal defendant has the right to take the stand in his own be behalf. And as I said, I believe Sam Alito's maiden opinion, the very first opinion he wrote as a Supreme Court justice, was an opinion that took for granted that, of course, the defendant had the right to take the stand on his own behalf and then um, deduce some other things uh, from it. So that's interesting. Now, note, though, the following thing. Um, okay, it wasn't widespread at the time of the Constitution. On the contrary, it wasn't widespread at the time of the 14th Amendment. On the contrary, but it was widespread when the court recognized in the 1960s, unlike um, the abortion right in Roe versus Wade. To repeat, almost every state had recognized this by the, the, the mid-1960s, except Georgia. Okay. But Whereas the, but in, in Roe, every single state basically was in violation of the, 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 the rules that were basically created out of whole cloth in Roe versus Wade. Right. So you can make, one could make the argument then that this, you had to show that it was, perhaps there was a burden to show that, that at the time that Roe was uh, adopted, that states either 
um, had adopted this or were moving very strongly to adopting. And there is some evidence of liberalizing of abortion laws around the time of Roe. Right, um, but not remotely to the extent that Roe actually, and um, that Roe's rules. Correct. Um, but, but it's not uh, nothing. Affected. Right. Um, but, but, just to repeat, 40, at least 49 states, every state except New York, and, and maybe even New York, um, had rules on the books that didn't meet the strict trimester framework um, um, and associated um, rules and regulations um, uh, promulgated in Roe versus Wade. Right. So, but nevertheless, his argument here that, that the key, he says, the most important historical fact is what was going on at the time of the 14th Amendment. That may mm-hmm. be a, a, an overstatement on, on his mm-hmm. part. Okay. For those of you who are lawyers and judges and admitted to the bar in any state, you probably know by now that this episode is accredited for continuing legal education directly in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and by reciprocity elsewhere by going to podcast.njsba.com and entering the code I'm about to announce. The code for this episode is LIBERTY. That's not case-sensitive, LIBERTY. Thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. So now he's made an argument that and we and we've had an episode before on rights on enumerated enumerated rights and Akil has maintained that unenumerated rights one of the ways that you can determine them is by counting states by seeing you know how many states have adopted it how many state constitutions have it or right. you know et cetera. and, and that's so, what we've just been doing correct and that and so here uh, and that's what uh, justice alito is doing here as well um so he's saying well you know the historical background doesn't favor it and the um, uh, you know the the modern background of adopting the laws you know having a, a you know an overwhelming trend as for example in the in Griswold versus Connecticut where 49 states um, had laws allowing uh, contraception and to be uh, bought and brought into the home and used in the home but not so, so Griswold is easy the other way because only Connecticut of all the states um, at that time or in fact I think maybe in history had ever um, purported to criminalize or prohibit the use of contraception in a home, even by a married couple. Only Connecticut did that. No other state had done anything like that. So those are the ways that, that you can get an unenumerated right. And so he's saying, well, it's not in the constitution. It's not enumerated according to him. It's not an unenumerated right. So therefore, it's, that's where he gets his statement that it's not in the Constitution. And let me also just mention, since you talked earlier about flowing, and I talked about implicit rights, uh, there are at least two different theories um, of, of Griswold being easy. There, there are more than two, but just let me just identify two. One, counting. 49 states recognize the right of people, especially married couples, in their own um, homes to um, have uh, sexual intimacy, especially if married. Okay, so this is this Connecticut law is really an outlier. It's weird. It's not in keeping with American customs and traditions and practices. So even if you're a traditionalist, this law is weird. It's not a traditional law. It's an eccentric law. That's one uh, line of argument. Um, pure unenumerated rights counting. A second approach, the flowing approach, the implicit approach. 
the Fourth Amendment talks about the right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Um, it's about intrusions into houses above and beyond all other buildings, stores, restaurants, warehouses, shopping malls, factories, etc. Why are houses specially mentioned in the Fourth Amendment? Why are houses specially mentioned in the Third Amendment? Troops can't be quartered in private houses um, uh, uh, without special safeguards. Um, so the flowing approach would say, well, strictly speaking, this may be this, uh, uh, this contraception law doesn't involve a search or seizure of the home, but it involves an intrusion into um, home life, domestic life. The Fourth Amendment and the Third Amendment, in the same way that speech and press are not just about oral speech and the printing press, but about expression more generally, that's what links them. If you think about the Third Amendment, the Fourth Amendment um, uh, taken as a package, it's about protecting home life, domestic life. Um, and, and this contraception law prohibits the use of contraception in a marital home. And, and that violates the kind of the spirit of the third and fourth amendments. So, so that's, you know, uh, different. Whereas now let's just take Roe using both of those um, ideas about Griswold in Griswold, we were dealing with one weird state in Roe, the court invalidated the laws of virtually every state at the county approach. Um, Roe, um, Griswold is about actually people who are married to each other in their home. Roe is about a transaction, an abortion that typically takes place outside the home in a clinic with um, a healthcare provider that you may have never met before. They never meet again. It's a financial transaction. We're very far from um, home life, even from kind of privacy or intimacy from a certain point of view. So, and, and he's going to mention, we haven't gotten to this yet. The biggest thing of all for, for this draft opinion is in Griswold, there was no innocent un, unborn human life in, 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 in being in existence. And um, with Roe, especially late term abortions, we're talking about a fetus with its uh, own moral status and interest. So he says that's totally different. From a privacy point of view, you can't assume away the fetus. Um, and, and Griswold wasn't about that. It was about contraception. Roe is inherently different because it involves unborn human life. And he goes on, and he makes a, a big deal, which we'll discuss later, um, about his, uh, that abortion is, is distinct from basically all the other cases that one might think of in terms of uh, civil rights um, recently, or you know, human rights and so forth. Cases like, like Obergefell or, or, or Griswold or many other cases. Um, because it involves the ending of what many consider to be a, a human life. Now, and, and we'll get into that. Um, okay, so the reason that, that one reason I've wanted to go over this, uh, these different types of rights is that as, as you read the opinion, it seems to me that um, he dismisses the notion that abortion could be an enumerated right basically just by saying that the word isn't there. And then he goes into this lengthy analysis 
uh, of dismissing it as an unenumerated right by going into counting and history mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yes. But, but he fails to address um, the remaining argument, which is that it could be an enumerated right that flowed, you know, or an implicit right. Um, and, ha- and you might say, well, how could that be? And the fact is that that argument has been made before. It was made in Casey. Um, it appears briefly in Casey. Now, he refers to this, right, to this argument twice. Um, uh, the argument is that um, it's implicit in the equality notion of the Constitution, which appears in several places. Women's equality in particular. Correct. And so at one point he just mentions it and he just dismisses it. He just says, this could be, this could be an argument, but it's wrong. He doesn't make an argument as to why and he doesn't cite anything. And then the other time is on page um, 60 in the opinion when he's, he's addressing questions of reliance issue, interests. So what, why is he talking about reliance interests? He's talking about reliance interests because that if there were uh, reliance interests that people are relying on the, um, the court's decision and, ad- and adapting their behavior in some fundamental way, um, based on the notion that this just, this is the law and will continue to be the law, um, then that might be a reason to not overrule a precedent, even if the precedent is wrong. That's that's one re- one of the factors. Um, and so he says, well, let's look at reliance, and actually there are no traditional reliance interests because those arise, quote, when advanced planning of great precision is most obviously a necessity, unquote. Um, he says that obviously doesn't apply, And then he says, unable to find reliance in the conventional sense, the controlling opinion in Casey perceived a more intangible form of reliance. It wrote that, quote, people had organized intimate relationships and made choices that defined their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. And that, and here's the, I think the more important part, the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. So that is an argument for that abortion rights are necessary for women's equality. Now he's saying, no, it's, this is just reliance, and then he dismisses it. And how does he dismiss it? He, he quotes Justice Rehnquist by saying, this court is ill-equipped to assess generalized assertions about the national psyche. Now, aside from the condescending nature <laughs> of that sentence, um, this this strikes me as a possible target in dissent. Okay, because this is he, he's he's categorizing, I think, the best argument um, to to keep Casey on the books, an equality argument, an implicit argument doesn't require it to be an unenumerated right and he's dismissing it by by throwing it into the reliance interest and saying oh well these aren't real reliance interests but they don't have to be reliance interests in order for them to be measures of equality so do you have any comment on that um that uh just to, to again to remind our audience you could think that uh the abortion right exists because of privacy um, but what about the fetus? Um, because of substantive due process, oh, but the tradition isn't there and, and the numbers, the counting doesn't really support it. Or 
you could say, no, it's really not about privacy, even though maybe that's what Bro said. It's not about tradition. The numbers aren't there. It's about women's equality. And that is in the Constitution. It's connected to the birth equality idea. Um, now, that's not a slam dunk argument because there are a lot of pro-life women, point one. Point two, um, I'm not sure the women's equality argument easily distinguishes between restrictions at um, uh, viability, 22 weeks, versus restrictions at um, 15 weeks of pregnancy, Mississippi, or six weeks, fetal heartbeat, um, Texas. So I'm, I'm not sure that equality actually uh, can easily generate the, the specifics of the row framework. And we talked a bit about this in our earlier row episodes, but here's what we also highlighted, that if you think, as I do, that that's the best argument constitutionally um, for um, the reproductive rights advocates, it's a women's equality argument and not a privacy argument and not a precedent argument and not um, a substantive due process argument or a tradition argument or accounting argument. If you think that's it, then it was a big mistake at oral argument to emphasize precedent, 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 row, 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 rather, because Roe said nothing about equality. In fact, the woman dropped out again and again and again, and Justice Blackman talked about the doctor, and the doctor was always a he, by the way, and he never uh, a she. So, so I thought at the time, and we played the clips, um, and Solicitor General Prologue and others kept saying privacy, liberty, precedent. And I kept saying, like, where's equality? Where's equality? And, and they were, it was just mumbled a little bit here and there. And so that was a mistake, I thought. Now, we, it remains to be seen how the liberals on the court, right now, let's call them dissenters, just assuming that uh, uh, tentatively it might seem as if Justice Alito has five votes. So now the folks on the other side... They have, we haven't heard from them. Their opinions haven't been leaked if they've even been written. What have they said? Are they going to emphasize equality big time? And if so, then he's going to say, um, then he may have to respond. One of the things he's going to say is, oh, I thought you were into precedent. Equality isn't very prominent in the precedent. And they can say, fine, forget precedent. Okay. It's, it's not about precedent. It's about what the constitution actually says. And it says equal. I've been urging the, 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 the reproductive rights folks to make that argument in a, in a more fulsome, emphatic way. They didn't really prominently in oral argument, but let's see. Uh, we'll eventually see um, if, if equality um, emerges um, more prominently in um, an opinion by Justice Sotomayor or Justice Breyer or Justice Kagan. And if it does, then I would predict that the, uh, the Alito opinion would be revised to more directly engage that argument. Um, you know, you're right that it really wasn't featured. You said it once in passing um, in the oral argument, but I'm pretty sure that at least some of the briefs did, did – uh, and the, the reason that I think that is even though I didn't read the briefs, I remember at one point that Chief Justice Roberts called attention uh, during the argument to one of the briefs that had all sorts of statistics about what had happened with the condition of women, you know, following the, the availability of, of, abor- of abortion. He actually said, well, let's not talk about that. But the, but the, but the fact is that that indicated that the briefs did, did discuss it. So I think that that's there in the briefs. I mean, and... 
The sc- scholars um, have, have prominently mentioned this. I, uh, 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 among others, have, have highlighted it, but I also highlighted the, some of the weaknesses of the argument. It doesn't quite, I mean, the, the issues of pro-life women, if this is really about women's rights, and there are a lot of women who believe in restrictions on abortion, how do we think about that? And I'm not sure it easily draws distinctions between 37 weeks, 22 weeks, 15 weeks, six weeks. So those are a couple uh, uh, of, of the issues. There also is an issue that equality analysis is difficult when there's um, not something that's absolutely identical on the male side. And on the male side, there's nothing absolutely identical to pregnancy. Here's, for example, what I've written. Gee, let's imagine uh, not unborn human life, but born human life. There's a baby. And the baby needs a blood transfusion, and only the father's blood will do. The law actually doesn't require the father to give up his blood, even though it's replenishable. And yet it requires a woman to give up her uterus for nine months uh, to, to preserve unborn human life. Let's imagine that the baby needs a kidney. The law doesn't require the father to give up one of his. Let's imagine he's the only one who matches, the biological father. Let's imagine they're not the, 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 the biological parents aren't married to each other. He doesn't want to give up his kidney. Um, he's got to. He doesn't need to. You're a doctor. You know that in general you don't need to. We don't require him to give up his kidney, um, um, but we do require her to give up her uterus. And so these are equality-like arguments that I um, and others have, have identified. And someone on the other side could say, Amar, you're just, this is science fiction. This is fantasy. Uh, kidneys aren't the same as uteri and, and blood is different. And, and so equality analysis is complicated when there's nothing exactly like pregnancy and you can't distinguish clearly between five weeks, 15 weeks, 22 weeks, and there are lots of pro-choice women. But I still think it's the best argument on the reproductive rights side. And I have for years urged, I'm not the only one, many other scholars have, have tried to talk about this, but the advocate, the oral advocates, not so much, and we will see, and the justices, not at oral argument, not so much. It will be very interesting to see, and and, and even Casey uh, Roe, not at all. Casey has one oblique sentence about it, so it will be very interesting to see the opinions of uh, justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and, and Breyer, um, and and to see if they do emphasize equality. My prediction would be, oh, Justice Alito will probably need to say more. But, you know, just getting back to what you're saying about, uh, you know, kidneys and so forth, but that's why the economic and social life argument is appealing because that's something that that women do participate in with men. And, you know, if they're put at a disadvantage in this manner, you know, that there is some equality argument, I think, there. Um, But also, you know, and you talked about, well, you know, 15, Mississippi is about 15 weeks and well, six weeks, 10 weeks. But that's where actually that could be turned into a positive here because that can be a landing spot for Justice Roberts um, to say, well, you know, equality, yes, but 15 weeks in this law actually is not unreasonable from that point of view um, and would still, would still allow women to participate equally, you know, in the economic and social life and the sort of thing, because they have 15 weeks to make this decision and so forth. So that Mississippi is okay, but, um, you know, if something else six weeks might not be okay because they wouldn't know they're pregnant. So that could be a landing spot for him. I don't know that he can bring 
you know, Justice Kavanaugh along with him there. But, uh, but you know, that wouldn't, it's just something to think about. Yeah, and they'd have to say women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. They, well, they don't frequently. That's well, you're the doctor, you know, and I've never been pregnant. No, 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 I no. I mean, you know, no, no, um, there's, so. there's no question. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I, when I was a medical student, I, I saw a woman at, at, that came in for delivery that didn't know she was pregnant. And, and the counter, but you see, that's the problem, see, because, you but that's, know, that's the exception. Weeks, but that's the you exception. know, so, so, but now you see some of the complexities if, if mm-hmm. you know, not all women know even at 15 weeks, but the, and the counter to be, well, can also be, okay, well, even at six weeks, Texas doesn't prohibit you from going to New Mexico and getting a procedure. So I predict that a big issue going forward is going to be about women who try to leave the jurisdiction to procure abortions that are legal elsewhere. Missouri is purporting to limit that, but Texas did not. And, and so, you know, so one fallback is, okay, 15 weeks is, is enough time, but six isn't. And the counter is going to be six is enough for most people because they know they're pregnant and they need to make up a decision. And if they're going to do it, they should do it sooner because that's less cruel and, and all the rest. And, and if, and, and their safety valve is still, you know, after six weeks, New Mexico or Illinois or New York or Connecticut or what have you. So, so um, anyway, that's where we are right now. And at some point we'll have to talk about right to travel and full faith and credit and things like that. All so, sorts of things. Yeah. So that's going to, that's going to come up anyway. So, so I guess, you know, that's to the degree there's a hole in this opinion. I think that that's the hole that I, that I believe as, as a layman, you know, reading it. In the spirit of full disclosure to the audience, I think the audience should also know about um, uh, the other main passage where the, this draft opinion talks about some liberal scholars um, and, um, who are generally pro-choice and what they've said about Roe versus Wade in particular. And this full disclosure, because I'm one of the people mentioned in this passage, and I think our audience needs to um, know that to, to discount uh, perhaps um, what I said, but also it's absolutely connected to our last episode, which is all about citation practices of the justices to scholars of various sorts. Uh, okay, so I think to clarify what, what Akil is saying there, um, he, he is cited on page 50 um, as one of the liberal scholars that have been disdainful of the reasoning of Roe. Right. So, this is in addition to the whole discussion about substantive due process versus privileges or immunities. And that was my Bill of Rights book that was cited. But this is a, a different a discussion. And, and it, he describes my view fairly. I am pro-choice and anti-Roe because Roe, in my view, is not well-reasoned at all. And Roe doesn't talk about equality, and, and so I, you know, I bracket um, that. But, but in this whole discussion about whether Roe should be followed or not at a key point, Andy, with your permission, can I read the paragraph? Sure. It's uh, page 50 at the top. This is Justice Alito speaking. All in all, Roe's reasoning was exceedingly weak, and academic commentators including those who agreed with the decision as a matter of policy, were unsparing in their criticism. John Hart Ely famously wrote that Roe was, quote, not constitutional law and gave almost no sense of an obligation to try to be, unquote. Uh, Citation. 
Archibald Cox, who served as Solicitor General under President Kennedy, commented that Roe, quote, reads like a set of hospital rules and regulations that neither historian, layman, nor lawyer will be persuaded are part of the Constitution, unquote. Cite. Lawrence Tribe wrote that, quote, even if there's a need to divide pregnancy into several segments with lines that clearly identify the limits of governmental power, interest balancing of the form the court pursues fails to justify any of the lines actually drawn, unquote. Cite. Mark Tushnet termed Roe um, a, quote, totally unreasoned judicial opinion, unquote. Cite. See also Philip Bobbitt, Constitutional Fate, Akhil Amar, forward, um, uh, uh, in, the, in the Harvard Law Review. Now, um, just for the audience, because they may not know all the references, the late John Hart Ely was a very distinguished liberal scholar. He clerked for Earl Warren. Um, he was a professor at Yale Law School, then at Harvard Law School, where he held the chair later held by Larry Tribe, and then he became the dean of the Stanford Law School. He himself was famously pro-choice, but he was a famous critic of Roe versus Wade. He wrote the book that was um, um, sold more copies than any other book about constitutional law in the late um, 20th century, a book called Democracy and Distrust. Um, and when I came on the scene, um, he was kind of the person that I, I was trying to write a big book on constitutional law that would be like Ely's book. So pro-choice, but anti-Roe. Then Archibald Cox, who, of course, not, was not only a John Kennedy Solicitor General, but would later famously become the special prosecutor in uh, Watergate, and um, also a very distinguished Harvard professor. Then Lawrence Tribe, yet another very distinguished Harvard professor, also on the left of the political spectrum. Then Mark Tushnet, actually, um, not just um, on the left of the spectrum, but on the radical left, on, on the hard left, uh, one of the, uh, the main intellectual uh, who gave birth to a movement called CLS, Critical Legal Studies, an offshoot of which is critical race theory, which you hear a lot about today. So what Alito is doing is moving from kind of center left through kind of Lawrence Tribe is a little bit more kind of progressive left, um, all the way to um, the, the AOC, you know, very, very far left um, and saying scholars across the spectrum on the left have criticized Roe, also citing Philip Bobbitt and yours truly. And of course, our audience will remember that Philip Bobbitt was the guest on our podcast um, way back when, when we talked about um, the, the Trump impeachment. So we audience, we try to bring you the players, so to speak, you know, the, the Philip Bobbitts of the, the world. We brought you Ed Whalen on one side on row, 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 and Linda Greenhouse on the other side on row, row, row. And we tried to make sure that you got to listen to um, uh, the oral advocates and the, the justices um, on various sides in the oral argument. When this case finally comes down, we're going to obviously look at it again and look at some of the other opinions in the partial birth abortion case, so-called 20 years ago, which I wrote about in that Harvard Law Review forward that Justice Alito cites, eight justices of the nine um, actually had opinions more than in any case in the previous decade. And maybe we're going to get a lot of opinions this time around, too, but one has leaked and it's been authenticated by um, the court. So we know that this is actually an Alito opinion. We, um, we don't know um, about all the other opinions, but when they come out, 
the audience should know, we'll share those with you. And, uh, right, so just to summarize then, uh, Professor Moore is being cited here as a liberal that has been critical of Roe's reasoning, along with a lot of other liberals that are critical of Roe's reasoning. I guess the point here is that you can be in favor of Roe, of uh, abortion rights as a matter of policy, um, but the reasoning offered in Roe for it as a constitutional matter was was lacking. And so you could even be in favor of abortion rights as a constitutional matter, but but you find Roe's particular take on it uh, to be weak. So here's what he actually said in the document, in the, in the Harvard Law Review, on the page that's cited. Um, he said... Uh, this is he being yours truly. Yes. yes this is okay. page 110 of the article. It says... There are several problems here. First, exactly where and how and why does the Constitution offer this basic protection? In other words, where is the first link in the chain of proper constitutional argument connecting Roe's rules to something actually in the document? Um, To properly apply legal principles to new facts, we need to know the reasons underlying the principles. In the year 2000, when this was written, it is hardly a state secret that Roe's exposition was not particularly persuasive even to many who applauded its result. Casey built on Roe without ever explaining why Roe was right. And then he goes on from there. So right. you can and see that's that the same thing I was saying about the oral argument in Dobbs, that they keep just saying Roe, 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 press and press and press and, and not really defending it. And when they did defend it, they said silly things like liberty. There is no abstract right to liberty as such. There's no liberty clause of the Constitution any more than there's a property clause of the Constitution. It says life, liberty, or property, and they can all be abridged by fair procedures and, and, and privacy, but privacy begs the question of the status of the fee. So I kept saying, make the equality argument, make the equality argument, because that's at least in the Constitution and um, and and hasn't really been well ventilated um, in U.S. reports. So what's left to the opinion then is to take on stare decisis. So we mentioned earlier, in other words, okay, maybe it's not, it wasn't such a great opinion, but it was the, it was the opinion, and then it was revisited in Casey, and maybe it wasn't so great, but Casey upheld it largely because it was already on the books. Um, um, uh, it actually overruled part of Roe, but it left you know the rights, the right to an right. abortion mostly on it. And so, okay, so then he talks about naked overrules, and we talked about that at the beginning of the podcast. And then he says, yep. well, um, there are other reasons that one might not you know uh, overrule it. Reliance interests we mentioned earlier, and then he says um, another another factor that might make you you know more likely to overrule a previous case is if it's not workable, okay? If it, does, if it creates a lot of problems, um, the decision is just it's hard to implement it, there's ambiguities, what does undue burden mean in Casey? Um, and what, what about the trimesters, you know, viability, when's that? That seems to be a moving target. Um, I'll tell you, as a layman, reading his objections to workability, I have to say that he basically said his evidence for it being unworkable cited dissenters time after time after time. So basically, if you dissent in a case and then other cases keep coming up that people didn't like the case in the first place are trying to throw a monkey wrench into it and they keep losing, but you say, well, 
you know, here's an example. This is an example of why it's unworkable. That's not very persuasive. You know, that yeah, you, I, you're just a my, bad my, loser. My, 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 my own view is that workability isn't the be all and end all. It's, they can be make way arguments. The better argument is Roe was wrong. It was egregiously wrong and therefore should be um, tossed out just as Plessy was, just as Lochner was. That's, I think, the cleaner, more straightforward um, argument. Now, it's possible he doesn't get five votes uh, without talking about the other factors because Kavanaugh uh, or Barrett wants discussion of of the other factors um, as well. Um, uh, But um, for me, you know, even if something is exquisitely workable if it's completely made up it's made up and and the constitution is the supreme law of the land not just things that the supreme court makes up okay so um to summarize then uh he uh he makes you know a variety of good points in this uh opinion that um go to the questions of whether or not this is an unenumerated right or not but there's still an argument remaining that he that we we'll wait to see what happens with the dissents and whether he takes it on. There could be, you know, a. Uh, I mean, one could see if he, if the votes were there, one could see it, which they're probably which they're not apparently, but one could see a result that says, yeah, Roe was wrong, even Casey was largely wrong, but equality, and so the right has to stay because it's in the Constitution, and there workability doesn't matter. You, um, you know, state counting states doesn't matter because if it's in the Constitution, it's there until it's amended. Right, and I I don't anticipate that any of the um, the five that at least preliminarily seemed to be on his side would uh, find that persuasive, but we won't know until. The, the liberals make that argument as best they can and, 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 and present it. It hasn't actually been well presented in U.S. reports. So we're coming up to the end of our time. Um, I think a, a major issue that we haven't discussed yet, which maybe we'll leave for next week, um, has to do with the impact of this decision beyond abortion rights. Yes, um, so there have been already um, articles. Uh, there was an article in Slate, and there, uh, uh, I saw elsewhere as well some commentary to the effect of, "Oh, this is the death knell for uh, for Obergefell, for Lawrence, for Texas, Texas and maybe even for things they like run. Griswold and and things like that." So right. you know, I think we should um, look at that and say, "Well, here's where in the decision." Um, he seeks to maybe protect some of those rights or here's where in the decision he's being a little sneaky. Um, and, uh, we should, we should take a look at that. And I think we'll. Excellent. And in a nutshell, just sneak preview, Griswold seems to me rock solid because of counting and because of houses and implicit and flowing. So Griswold totally different. It says houses in the third and fourth amendment. This is about, you know, intrusions into the home and, um, uh, the, the right that was upheld, a right of married couples to use contraception is deeply rooted in custom tradition practice. 49 states had always recognized it, um, and, and Connecticut was the outlier. So Griswold's easy um, based on what he actually says in, in this draft. Obergefell and Lawrence, if they are easy, and I think they are, are easy because they're not best understood 
as substantive due process cases or even privileges and immunities. They're best understood as gay equality for reasons we talked about last week, birth equality, um, which is in the Constitution, the first sentence of the Fourth Amendment. You're born equal, whether you're born uh, uh, black or white, male or female, Jew or Gentile, in wedlock or out of wedlock, or gay or straight, you know, whether you're born to citizen parents or non-citizen parents. So, so that's what we're going to talk about next week some more, you know, the, uh, building on the equality idea. And, yeah, and we'll look at some of the words in the opinion and see, you know, where, where uh, you know, of course it's one thing of what, you know, Akhil believes the Constitution says, and, yes. you know, and then it's another thing of what the justices are going to say the Constitution says. So right. I think that looking at what Alito says, we can... And he's he's uh, not all that, uh, you know, uh, hidden in some ways. I mean, he likes to say things, invite certain cases, and, and he likes to sort of give you a preview of where he's going. Um, so we, we can uh, take a look at that and speculate on whether he's got enough justices to follow him. Okay. All right. So big news this week and more to come.